Well, we are beginning a new series, and so I'd love for you now to take your Bibles and turn to the older of the Testaments, and we're making our way now to the book of Psalms. And what we're going to be doing is to be finding a way to see how the five books of the Psalms link themselves together. The natural tendency when you're reading the Psalms is to simply view a Psalm as an antidote when you've had a very tough day to be turning to one of the Psalms and finding a way to make your way through the night and get a good night's rest so you have a fresh start in the morning. What we're going to try to do through this series is to see how the Psalms, in essence, link together. Not that we're going to cover every single Psalm, mind you, but what we're going to do is to look at the five books. Each book has a very powerful, succinct, dramatic theme attached to it. Book one leads naturally into book two, and so on and so forth. And what we're going to be doing today is to look very carefully at the intentional design that books one and two in particular have. I'll be covering book one to, rather, uh, Psalm one today, and John will handle Psalm two next week. What you and I are going to see is that Psalm one and Psalm two serve as what we might call the gateway or the entryway into the five books of the Psalms. Furthermore, Psalm 1 is known as a Torah psalm. We get the word law from Torah. We'll see why in just a few moments. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. So today we're looking at a Torah psalm. You'll see that again, and you look very carefully at Psalm 19, again in Psalm 119. Those three in particular are Torah Psalms. Torah gives you a sense of direction, gives you a sense of guidance for life. So what we're going to do is to combine this week and next week as our entry point, our gateway by which we're going to be able to then see how the five books of the Psalms begin to link themselves together. Today, the Torah Psalm, and next week, the Messianic Psalm. So I'd love to begin reading from uh, Psalm 1, and here you and I are going to find now, find these words. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, literally the Torah, you see, of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now, in verse 3, in the Hebrew, it starts with the word and. It doesn't seem for whatever reason to show up in the English versions. But if you will, I'd like to say, and he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
And therefore, the wicked will not stand at the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So you see there in verse 6, you've got two ways. The right way and the wrong way. The true way and the false way. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And thus, this morning's exposition deals with the idea of two ways. Let's look to our Lord this morning in prayer. Now, Father, what we want to do is to be able to harness all the details that are found here in these six verses. Thank you for our two-year study in the book of Acts and how you gave us insights of how we are gathered on Sundays, Wednesday nights, life groups, and so on, to be scattered. Now we enter into something new from the narratives of Acts into the poetry of the wisdom books of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms. And we're asking that as we now look into this wisdom book, for some of us, we're going to have to make direct application to our own personal life experience. And for others, we see here now, these are tools that you're giving us as to how to counsel others, how to guide others in our work, in our professions, in our parenting, in our grandparenting, in our, in our relationship as from one single person with another through it all, Father, what we want to do is to harness the wisdom that's found in the wisdom of Psalms and apply it to everyday life situations. So these moments are important. So what we're asking once again now, Father, is that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wheels, so again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at this picture that appears on the screen. You're in Israel, our tour guide. His name's Jacob. And he's pointing out the various gates by which you can enter into Jerusalem. But there's one gate in particular that seizes our attention. It's known as the Golden Gate. It's the Eastern Gate. Some know it as the Beautiful Gate. It's been sealed up by the Muslims for hundreds of years because their efforts are such is that they want to be able to prevent the entrance of the future Messiah. I recall Jacob pausing at this point and reading from Ezekiel chapter 44, prophetic statement with regard to the Messiah to come into Israel, into Jerusalem. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east. 
and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened. And no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince, you know him, that's Jesus. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by, and I mark this word, by way. By way of the vestibule of the gate. And shall go out by the same way. You and I are standing with our tour guide, Jacob, and others that are part of the tour. And now he has just read to us Ezekiel chapter 44. Ezekiel had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Longings for return to Israel. And this vision, this form of prophetic instruction was offered to him. And now we ponder the fact that currently that gate, in fact, is sealed. Sealed up. It's been so for hundreds of years. Check out the Ottoman history of Islam. Entrance sealed for the future. And thousands of graves are there on the slopes that face it. For you see, those Jewish graves are there with the hope that they will be the first resurrected upon the Messiah's arrival. And so to prevent his to prevent his arrival, the Muslims in fifteen forty one they established a cemetery at that gate to stop his path to the gate and then sealed that gate to be to be certain, the gate that most likely Jesus entered in on Palm Sunday. Reading in an archaeological journal, a rainy night in April 1969, the American archaeologist James Fleming came to study the Golden Gate, which is sealed in only one of the gates the only one of the gates and walls of the old city of Jerusalem to directly face the Temple Mount. While Fleming was walking outside the Temple Mount near the gate, which faces a Muslim cemetery, the ground beneath him opened up. He fell into a large hole. Quote, I was disoriented but uninjured, he later wrote in a biblical archaeological review. I picked myself up, tried to focus my eyes in the dim light that came through the hole above my head. I suddenly realized I was standing amidst the bones of 30 to 40 skeletons, apparently thrown together in a mass burial, having to do with the Arab revolt pertaining to Israel's 1948 War of Independence. But here's what's interesting. When Fleming, the archaeologist, arrived, the next day he found that the hold had already been repaired. Before leaving, he looked around again and saw an old arch 
which he believed was connected to an old gate which existed in that location before the Golden Gate was built. What I'd like to do with you as we begin now Psalm 1 is to couple it with Psalm 2 and view this as your Golden Gate entrance. Psalm 1, Psalm 2. Torah Psalm, Psalm 1. Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2. This then is your entryway. This is your golden gateway. As you make your way in now, understanding how all of this begins to fit together in these Psalms. Let's dig in. Now as you and I, as we consider the ways of humanity here, that are described in these six verses. There's going to be two, what I will call, contrasts. Contrasting descriptions, if you will, that stand out. First comes out of one through three. Notice, first of all, the description of those whom God views favorably. And it begins with the word blessed. And you say, Gary, I'm so used to that word. But can we develop it? You know, in the Genesis account, God blessed and blessed and blessed when it came to those opening days that God was involved in his creative working. And then we are told that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. The Greek word, berach. When you get to Genesis chapter 12, what we find is that the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation and I will what? Bless you, berach you. And I will make you a great nation. I will berach you and make your name great so that you will be a, a blessing, a berach. And I will bless Barach those who Barach you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Barach, you see. Which means then that the promises given to the Jews were to be the evangelistic means by which the world was Barach, blessed, you see. Now when the psalmist pens these thoughts... What he wants to do is to get the reader to start thinking. I am to not only view myself, if I put faith and trust in my Messiah, as berocked, blessed, but out of this, I've got a message of blessing to all those around me at work, in neighborhoods, in my various relationships, in my family. Now, what I want you to see and what is fascinating about your Golden Gate entrance here into the Psalms, look at how verse 1 begins, and in chapter 2, look at how the last verse ends. Verse 1, blessed is the man in Psalm 1. In Psalm 2, how does it end? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What we now see are what 
Old Palmer Robertson calls at this point the twin pillars, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the means by which you're entering in through this gateway into the Psalms. These twin pillars, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, come together, and you can see they are jointly tied together by the blessing found at the beginning of verse 1, and how in Psalm 2 it ends there, as you see in verse 12. Blessed is the man. You are blessed so that you will be a blessing in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, at school, and so forth. It's got evangelistic overtones. It's grace. Blessed is the man, he's speaking collectively of humanity at this point, but now what I want you to see here is something that I want to unpack with you. He develops what I will call a threefold negative. Do you see how it begins? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The not nor. It's a trio. But furthermore, what I want you to see here is that there is a sequence. This individual begins, if you will, in his life journey as he considers all the values of this world and all the opinions of this world and all the beliefs of this world, it is, if he will, he begins his walk and then he comes to a stop and stands. And then if he gets comfortable with what he is hearing, he takes his seat. Walk, stand, seat. This is a spiritual journey now that is beginning to unfold in front of your very eyes that the Israelites would have had to have understood as you and I have to understand. But I want you to see here now how it begins to impact your life and my life. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The word counsel carries with the idea of a mindset. It's a way of thinking. A way of viewing life that's hardened, that's firm, and stands contrary to God's word, God's will. In other words, we are now counseling an individual that's heading in that direction. And in this directionally impaired culture, here is his first step. He is now walking in that direction and becoming somewhat acquainted with the counsel that runs contrary to God's word. How does this work today? You make your thread through the internet and check out some websites that run contrary to God's word. You find particular networks that run contrary to God's word. You are taking counsel in that first of three movements. This is the input that he now is receiving at this point. There's a caution. Walk not. This blessed man, this blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked, in their way of thinking, embracing their minds, 
But now, this individual, you move forward, nor stands in the way of sinners. The word stand here literally means he, he takes his stand. To put it another way, this is now how he positions himself in the worldview thinking of 2021. I'm taking my stand with this value system as compared to that value system. With this belief as opposed to that belief. In other words, he is now beginning to take his stand against God's word rather than with God's word. And you can see the movement. He walks. He's getting comfortable. Takes his stand. He's getting his directions now from such, allowing for this input to reshape his output because he takes his stand in the way. Very directional. And the word the way here in the Hebrew carries with the idea of a very well-marked path. It is a, a path that so many people would take. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating what he's saying at this point. And you compare it then to what, to what Jesus would have to say. Because Jesus in his teachings addresses such ways addresses such paths. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to the destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Now, you've got to bear in mind, Jerusalem was marked by many gates. And so when Jesus was teaching this, the people understood the gateways that led into the epicenter of Israeli experience. The gate is narrow, the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So now, this one begins. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Number two, Noah stands in the way of the sinner. In other words, does not take his position there. But now, thirdly, Noah sits in the seat of the scoffers. Do you see how comfortable he's become? He's moved from taking his stand to now sitting, and this was a legal term. It carries with the idea that he is now making decisions judicially, legally, that impacts people morally pertaining to present and future. And you say to yourself, I think I, think I know exactly who the psalmist is thinking of. And you're right. For in Genesis chapter 13, the readers would have known this story because they're invested in Torah. Abraham's got a, a challenging relationship with his nephew Lot. And we are told Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan River was well watered. Everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoah. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now notice it moves from Saul to chose. In Genesis 13, 11, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And here begins, he steps out. Lot journeyed east. 
and thus they separated from each other. Now his influence of biblical perspective is being lost. Abram settled in the land among Canaan, the land of Canaan, while Lot settled, you see, among the cities of the valley, moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then we are told, now the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. And when do we meet up with Lot again? Well, in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 1, we're informed that two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Walk, stand, sit. Which means he had reached a point now of acceptance so that he is weighing in legally, judicially, at the gate of Sodom, a city that was utterly opposed to everything pertaining to God's word. How do you counter this? What do you do here at this point? Let's say you're counseling somebody and you see the movement from walk to stand to sit. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul wrote, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The challenge is over the course of time such an individual loses his capacity, her capacity to discern, to distinguish the right from the wrong, the true from the false. It gets relativized. You need something that will serve as the distinguishing feature in a very blended culture. Where do you go? Here's your answer. You're up to verse 2. See the but? After that movement of walking to standing to sitting, now the contrast. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, the word law here comes from Torah. And Torah, the Hebrew, the verb form means literally to point out the direction that one should take. It's meant to serve as a guide, direction for life, not a rigid set of rules that will restrict the way of life. A guide, a director. I remember prior to a Winter Olympics years ago, there were these blind skiers that were being trained for slalom skiing, believe it or not. They were paired with sighted skiers, and the blind skiers were taught on the flats how to make right and left turns. And when that was mastered, they were taken to the slalom slope where their sighted partners skied beside them, shouting, left, right, left, right. I was struck, it was, it was televised, I was struck with how they observed the commands. They were able to negotiate the course 
and I thought about life itself. You and I have to rely upon God's word, his Torah, because it gives us direction that we need to be able to navigate our course. So now, this individual who is blessed, who is saved by grace through faith, is not one who walks in the counsel of the wicked. He can distinguish that nor become comfortable and then taking a stand in the way of sitters, nor become so fixed that he takes his seat among the scoffers. These scoffers, you see, that look cynically at all things Christian. But as the light is in the law of the Lord, and now what captures our attention is that on his law, his Torah, where he gets his counsel, gets his direction, makes his distinctions. He meditates day and night. Now, who comes to mind as you read that? The answer, Joshua. Joshua's in a situation now where where we find him is that Moses has passed the baton on to Joshua. And as Joshua now is going to have to figure out a way how to lead the people to be able to make distinctions in a culture such as in the land of Canaan, listen to what it says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. The book of the law, that's Torah, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Now, the person who is reading the psalm at this point and understands this is my golden gateway into understanding the collection of the psalms, sees the threefold negation from walking to standing to sitting counters it, you see, with delighting in the law, which is something internal, delighting in. And then on his law, he meditates day and night. He not only internalizes it, but he verbalizes it because the Hebrew word here for meditate is literally to mutter. Now, if you've stood at the wailing wall, you're struck with how those next to you, and you're wearing a yarmulke, they have Torah in their hands, and they're leaning forward, and they're continuously muttering. And you wonder, what's the purpose? Why are they doing this? The answer is, they are taking very seriously Psalm 1 at this point. And they're following in the footsteps of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. They are meditating as they're muttering, and what they are doing is that they are memorizing as well as internalizing the word of the Lord. And they're getting their sense of guidance. They're getting their sense of direction. They're following the principles here that you and I see in verse, in verse 2. Now, we had mentioned that we need to insert 
a conjunction and at the beginning of verse 3. Not there in the English. It is in the Hebrew. So what the writer now wants to do is to say, in light of what you've just read about the three absolute negations and your delight in Torah, which gives you guidance, direction, able to make distinctions in life so you can counsel others effectively on their journey in life, here is a simile for you. He's like a tree. Now, notice the imagery and what it, the principles behind it. It's like a tree. You're saved by grace. Like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. My mind goes back to a story that was told by Jean Giano. It was about a, a shepherd, Elziad Bouffier. They met in 1913 in the French Alps. At that time, because of careless deforestation, the mountains around a certain region of France were barren. And the winds blew furiously. There was no foliage to protect. Jeanneau tells us that while mountain climbing, he came to this shepherd's hut, invited to spend the night, and after dinner, Jeanneau watched the shepherd sort through a pile of acorns. He was discarding those that were cracked and those that were undersized. And when the shepherd counted out a perfect 100, he stopped for the night and would go to bed. Gianna learned that this 55-year-old shepherd had been planting trees on the wild hillsides for over three years. He had planted 100,000 trees 20,000 of which had sprouted. After World War I, Giano returned to the mountainside. First time together in 1913. Now after World War I, come back together, and there's this incredible rehabilitation. There's this veritable forest, he tells us, accompanied by a chain reaction in nature. Water flowed in the once empty brooks. The ecology came back. Willows, rushes, meadows, gardens, flowers, birth. A third time. Came back after World War II. 20 miles from the lines where battles were being fought, the shepherd had continued to work, ignoring the War of 1939, just as he ignored that of 1914. Meanwhile, the reformation of the land continued. Whole regions glowed with health, and with prosperity. He writes, On the site of the ruins I had seen in 1913 now stand neat farms, old streams fed by the rains, snows, and so forth, flowing again. Little by little, villages have been rebuilt. People from the plains, where land is costly, have settled here. There's youth, there's motion, there's spirit, there's adventure and I thought about the Christian and the impact upon this culture. For you see, in a dry, barren culture, the one saved by grace understands the idea of the barak, the blessing, not only as a reservoir of barak, but a channel of barak, 
whereby you then proclaim the good news that Jesus died for sins and on the third day rose again. And now what we do then, in essence, we revitalize a nation. We revitalize a region. We bring revitalization to families because we understand the significance that is found here in the imagery of being planted, fortified, stable, fruitful, productive, naturally, not unnaturally, where the leaves are unwithered even during the days of difficulty. This tree, you see, in the storms of life remains undaunted, prosperous, fulfills the goals that God has designed. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the imagery you bring. And that's how you change a culture for the glory of God. And that's the description of those whom God views favorably. You're like a tree. Circle the word like. Okay. Now, we're talking about contrasting descriptions, aren't we? We said the first description was the description of those whom God views favorably in Psalm 1, 1 through 3. But here's the flip side. Then notice furthermore the description of those whom God views unfavorably beginning now in verse 4. The wicked are not so. Notice the abruptness in the wording. Literally in the Hebrew, it simply starts off, launches off, not so, in the emphatic position. It took four clauses to describe those who God views favorably. It takes one clause to describe those whom God views unfavorably. It is the not so. These are the people that have not put faith and trust in the Messiah. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, would you draw a line of comparison from verse 3 to verse 4? The one who is blessed is like a tree. See the word like? The wicked are not so, but are like chaff. Like a tree in verse 3, like chaff in verse 4. And now you're beginning to pull together the significance and the imagery of the contrast. I love the way Ray Stedman puts it. I don't think people in the city understand chaff. Where I come from, we had harvesters who came around with a thrashing rig. The bundles of wheat would be thrown into this machine. The straw would be blown out into the stack. The wheat would come dribbling out to be poured into trucks or wagons or taken away to the granary. But floating around in the air everywhere was chaff. It was the awfulest stuff you ever saw, stuck to your skin when you were sweating, universally regarded as totally worthless, but makes this poignant statement. Back in David's day, a thousand years before Jesus came, the only thing they could think of to do with chaff was let the wind blow it away. See verse 4? The wicked are not so. Like chaff 
that the wind drives away. You begin to see the contrast between the tree and the chaff in what he is poetically describing for you and for me to begin to understand seriously in what's going on here. Now, in verse 5, there's a therefore. Always ask what's therefore, therefore, okay? Therefore, he says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And what fascinates me is that this word stand is a different word than what was used in verse 1. In this one, this person seems so confident he stood erect. But now that this person standing before God, and this is the depiction of one who is stooped in the midst of his stand. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why, we ask? In verse 6, Yahweh. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now the reader at this point sees the word righteous in his mind. Her mind is now percolating. Because back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abram embraced the promise that God had given with regard to a seed to come. Ultimately, out of that seed would come Jesus Christ, you see. And we are told that he believed the Lord, and he, speaking of God, counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, we come into this world unrighteous, but when we put faith and trust in Messiah, Jesus Christ, we are not made righteous. We are declared righteous. It's a legal term. What's fascinating is that this counters then the idea of the one who legally was sitting in the seat of the scoffers. Verse 1. God legally declares the one who puts faith and trust in Messiah as righteous. See now the contrast, the two ways for living. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And I end with this thought taken from Elizabeth Elliot who talks about two adventurers who had stopped by to see her in Ecuador, all loaded with equipment for the rainforest east of the Andes. They didn't ask for any guidance, perspective, directive, just a few phrases to talk with the Indians to be able to communicate. And she thought about that, and began to ponder and wrote, sometimes we approach life as the two adventurers came to me, confident, well on their way, well informed, well equipped. But has it occurred to us that something is missing? The answer, God's word. What we really ought to have is the guide himself, she says. We need someone who has been there before. Someone, she ends, who knows the way.
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And now we're making our way through the gateway and we'll tie together Torah Psalm with Messianic Psalm. Welcome to the Psalms. Let's stand together. So now, Father, as we've inched out of our series in the book of Acts, we make our way now into this series in Psalms. We know we're dealing with the whole issue of wisdom that's found here in these verses. You've given us the entryway, the golden gateway, to begin to understand how all of these books of the Psalms, five and all, relate to one another. But I pray in particular now for anybody who's watching online in the days to come, or even at this moment, for all who've been physically present in one of these services this morning, may we now embrace what's here and understand that in the two ways of living, there is only one way that leads to you. It's through Jesus Christ, him alone, to be blessed, is to be one who has put faith and trust in Jesus. And for this, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.